This episode of Branching Out is brought to you by Okanagan Craft Cocktail Bar and Made in America House Cleaning Services. Welcome to Branching Out, a podcast presented by the reporters and editors of the Acorn Newspapers, offering you a closer look at the news in your community. Hi, welcome to another episode of Branching Out. I'm Acorn reporter Don Megley, and it is Monday, October 25th. Thousand Oaks is often touted as a great place to live because of the quality of its local schools. The city's public schools are, in fact, award-winning, but running them is no child's play. From battles over curriculum, sex education, and COVID protocols, school board meetings are often referred to as Tuesday night fights. Today, we're sitting down with Mark McLaughlin, superintendent of Caneo Valley Unified, to talk about what it's like to helm the largest school district in Ventura County, the challenges it faces, and why we have reason to be excited about the future. Before we get started, let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Oak and Iron Craft Cocktail Bar. As you already know, Oak and Iron is the best place to go in Thousand Oaks to get a craft cocktail. But oh wait, it is so much more than that. Starting this month, Oak and Iron is expanding its partnership with Lost Brewing Company by offering beer to go. Yes, it's true. Don't have a lot of time but want to take that great tasting Lost beer home or to a friend's house, maybe catch a Dodgers game? Just stop into Oak and Iron at 2967 East Thousands Boulevard, just down from Hampshire Road. They're offering either a 32-ounce crawler or a four-pack of cans. And of course, with the holidays just around the corner, keep in mind Oak and Iron is the perfect place to throw that holiday get-together or office shindig. Just go online to www.oakandiron.com and click on Make a Reservation. You'll be able to reserve space in their downstairs speakeasy. It's super comfortable, super private. You can even bring your own food. Just leave the drink making to that wonderful and talented, friendly staff at Oak and Iron. Oak and Iron, great people, great vibes, great drinks. What more could you ask for? Check them out and please let them know Branching Out sent you. So can I get you to say your name and your job title? Yes, uh, Dr. Mark McLaughlin, Superintendent, Caneo Valley Unified School District. So let's begin at the beginning. We all know you as the local school's chief who holds a PhD, but it sounds like your life started far away from the halls of academia. I understand you grew up as a bricklayer's son in Montana. Talk to me about your blue collar background and how you got into a career in education. Sure, so um, growing up, um, obviously uh, my dad did own a large masonry company uh, in Montana. Um, That was really the only thing that as a child growing up in our household that we knew. My mom was the bookkeeper and the secretary for the company, and my dad obviously uh, owned and ran the company. Uh, He had a lot of bricklayers. Um, You know, in the summer months, uh, there were up to 20 bricklayers and then laborers, um, or hod carriers, we'd call them in the the brick world, um, would... uh, you know, probably another 10 to, to 15. So large crews in the in the summer months, a lot of um, block buildings, uh, Walmarts, Kmarts, uh, grocery stores, theaters, uh, and schools. So it was a pretty busy, um, you know, summer months. The winters in Montana are cold and, and a lot of snow. So, you know, those are usually meant um, from a, from 
our family or the bricklayer side of the house, indoor fireplaces and uh, brick projects and things like that. But the summer summer months were really held to uh, block buildings and lots of work. And so how do you get from that, like working with your hands, helping with your dad's business to, I mean, now you hold a PhD and are responsible for educating 17,000 kids? Yeah, well, I think, you know, my dad actually put my twin brother and I to work at a, at a really young age as hod carriers. Um, I think it was 1987 was probably the first uh, summer uh, that we had to go to work. And not just the summers did we have to work, but during uh, breaks and any Monday holidays while my friends were off going to the mall and out to lunch, we were packing our lunches um, and walking out the door to work. So um, I think for me personally, um, that was an experience that, you know, was 10, 10 years of, of working construction. And as I started out, obviously, uh, I was very green in the business, uh, not really knowing, um, you know, what to do on the first day that I showed up at the job site. But through the first part of that summer, you know, you learn a lot. Um, you have to because, you know, those bricklayers want things a particular way. Their blocks set a certain way, mud up on their mud boards a certain way. And so for me, um, I just had to figure that out as as I moved along as, as a HUD carrier. And through the course of, you know, maybe two years, myself or my brother, we were doing the lead labor jobs on very big projects in the state. And so you basically had to learn to problem solve, uh, work with other trades, learn to differentiate how you worked with the different uh, bricklayers. And so for me, those were all life lessons that really put the, I guess, the forefront into people seeing me as a leader as I got into education. Um, you know, I thought there was a time, and I think my family thought there was a time where I'd probably take over the business. And a bricklayer in, in Montana is a tough, tough job um, because of the winter months and, you know, there's not work year round. And so, um, one, I knew that that would, would be an issue, too. Um, it does take a big toll on your body, um, your hands, knees, um, things like that, your feet, uh, because you're up using them all the time. And so, you know, for me, it was, do I go down that path or do I, you know, do something else? So I did try to start uh, in the business world my first year of college, and I just didn't really enjoy it. So I transferred uh, colleges and I went to Western Montana uh, College in Dillon, uh, which is a, a uh, mainly an education school um, where I um, started my really my freshman year again um, taking education classes and being out observing uh, elementary schools. So I graduated with a bachelor's of science in elementary education where in California that's not the case. You don't get that degree. You have to get your liberal arts degree and then do a fifth year to earn your uh, teaching degree. So I knew right away once I got into it that um, you know, I really enjoyed working with the younger elementary grades. Um, I took an interview uh, at my local college when class size reduction was taking place here in California, and it was, um, you know, for a teaching position in Fontana, and it was in a class, um, a school setting of 20 students, which sounded marvelous. Um, they posted what they would be paying the salary, which was much higher than uh, most pay scales for a first year teacher in Montana. And so I said, you know what? 
I'm going to go and, and do the interview just for experience. So in case um, I get the opportunity to interview in Montana that uh, in a school district locally that I'd have some experience, went through the interview. During that interview, they offered me a, a position right then and there. I didn't accept it. I said, I'd like to come out and see uh, the area first and what I'm getting myself into. Drove out here uh, to California, looked around, um, made the decision, you know what, maybe I'll try this for one year, uh, just a different way of life and a different experience. And that was 24 years ago. <laughs> so a lot has happened during that time, but uh, I do miss, um, you know, there's a lot of days where I miss being in the classroom with second and fourth graders and I miss just being on a school setting you know, that's basically how you go from being in the, in the, the brick world to being an educator and, um, every opportunity in between has always, you know, helped me build uh, my skills in leadership and basically communication with others. Yeah. And Montana rhymes with Fontana. So I feel like that's just fate. You know, um, every time I, I say Montana, people ask it, did you say Fontana? If I say Fontana, they ask if if I, I, I meant Montana. Um, you know, I was 15 years I spent working in Fontana and, and loved every second of it. Um, demographics were obviously different. My focus on students was different, which probably we'll get into later, but drives a little bit of the work that we're doing within our district and, and a little bit of the why of why certain demographics um, seem to speak to me uh, more than I would say maybe in the past um, in our community. And so, uh, but we'll get into, into that as we, we move along, I'm sure. So that's actually a perfect segue because I've covered CVUSD for almost five years now. And one of the most striking changes I've seen during that time is the extent to which marginalized groups have experienced an ascendancy within the district and have really gained a place at the table in district discussions. Whether it's students with disabilities, the LGBTQ community, or students of color. So talk to me about the district's effort to be responsive to groups that have previously felt like they didn't have much of a voice within the district. Yeah, I, uh, well I appreciate the question. Uh, for me, when I transitioned into uh, Canal Valley nine years ago as the Assistant Superintendent of Human Resources. And we had our, you know, summer beginning of the year meetings. And that's when school districts had their API and AYP data coming out. And I remember being in a meeting and the, the AYP data, uh, which is a breakdown by each um, subgroup or demographic group in the, in the district, um, how they performed on the last year's state assessment was handed out. And it seemed to me, and, and I, I could be wrong, but my eyes particularly went to our Hispanic group, African-American group, our English learners, and our special education students, where I think everybody else's eyes at the table went to the Caucasian group and how well did they do? Because we knew that those groups that I looked at were a much smaller group or percentage of our population. And so um, really what was gonna dictate how our API came out was, was the larger of the group. And so for me, um, there was an aha right there that, um, you know, there does need to be some focus um, on, on our marginalized groups of students. I can't say that I, I heard a lot of brainstorming and discussion of strategies on, on working with, um, you know, 
specific groups of students. Now I was in the HR world, so I can't say that I was always in instructional meetings and that everything would come through um, like our cabinet meetings. So, you know, I only knew what I knew from the meetings I was in. And what seemed to me was there were just groups that um, really were not being recognized and um, really discussed about how we can see performance grow, but also from the instructional side, um, how we can engage them more in the classroom um, and um, just see some growth um, academically um, over time. And so really that's um, how that came to be for me uh, in this district was, was just really, I felt having someone needed to have a voice for that group. And, and eventually over time, and as I came in as a superintendent, um, you know, my voice became, I guess, greater um, because, you know, you hold that superintendent position. And then as I worked on building different cabinet members and director levels and and site principals and assistant principals, you know, we were able to start bringing a little bit more of a a focus to those areas. Um, I don't think that um, this is against anybody who worked here in the past. Um, it was really uh, just me coming in with my experience and the demographics that I worked with in the past that was really uh, the driving force for me and the, and and then the folks in which we were looking at at hiring. And so you know I do appreciate the the processes and I appreciate the groundwork that was um, put in place from previous administrators uh, in CVUSD. but um, for me as, as the superintendent and, and moving forward, I knew that we needed to to give a voice to our groups that um, may have been so small that, um, you know, they didn't have a voice on their campus because there may have been only one or two or three or five African-American families on that campus, um, or there wasn't a, a administrator on that campus who spoke Spanish and, you know, that group um, needed someone to speak to. So those were things that, you know, we've been just really working out over the course of the last five years. Yeah. And some of those developments have been really recent because it seems like just within the past month or two, there were like parent groups formed, you know, like to make sure that the voices of African-American families and LGBTQ students have been heard. And then obviously there have been outside groups like Thrive and Adelante that have um, just gained like a really big voice within within the district. Um, this seems like it's a personal effort for you because I remember that following the protests over George Floyd's mm-hmm. murder, you became emotional during a board meeting talking about your own son who is biracial and your nephews who are black and you express some of the worries that you have for their safety. So to what extent do your personal experiences give you a heart towards diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, I think, you know, for me, um, growing up in Montana, I didn't see much diversity, um, to be honest. And so a lot of this is really learned um, behaviors and and thought processes since um, my time here in California. So over the course of the last 24 years, um, I did meet my wife on the school campus where I was a teacher and she was a speech pathologist. And, um, you know, just the experience of, of working with uh, or being around her and her family, you know, was eye-opening. Um, my wife is Indian, and I had never had Indian food. Um, <laughs> That's a deprived existence. <laughs> yes. Um, now it is like the list at the top of my list of favorites. Um, in Montana, you know, that's just you just didn't experience it or have the opportunity to experience it. And so, um, you know, obviously, as um, you know, her and I uh, got married and and had kids. Um, 
you know, and we would go back to Montana. I mean, it was like we weren't in town five minutes and everybody knew that we were in town <laughs> visiting um, because just of, you know, us and our, our, our makeup. And so as we moved here to Canal Valley, um, you know, we had to make some decisions of, you know, where we we're going to live. Um, we had some friends who lived out here who gave us some advice, um, you know, obviously shared some things that maybe um, we're not flattering towards, you know, the Thousand Oaks community or Westlake Newberry Park and the acceptance of um, biracial families. And so, you know, we did struggle on where we were going to live. Um, it just so happened that when uh, we moved out here, my wife, who is a speech pathologist for the County Office of Education, um, her school was that she was placed at was out in Ventura. So we said, let's just, we'll split the difference. And, and we came to Camarillo, but, um, you know, it's, it's been a hard transition for us. Uh, it's been hard for us to transition from, um, Fontana, where I think we both really loved the community that we are working with. We really enjoyed the folks that we were working with. And, and, um, that was just really where all of our experience was, um, and then through the course of just time and working with my own, you know, my, my own family, um, uh, and, and my nephews and, and just on the spectrum of, uh, family members who fall in the LGBTQ plus, um, you know, I have like 35 nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews. So we fall all over the place. Um, and they've all married different races as well, um, or involved with different races. And so that to me just, um, brings out that experience of, of really looking at things, um, from that lens of, of, community groups that may have less of a voice, but deserve that voice. And then me working with um, cabinet and our directors and principals on how can we build that voice and that trust? I mean, the big piece is trust. And so I'm able to speak from some experiences. I mean, not that they're hand in hand and nor would I ever think that they would be, but I do have the ability to have some experiences and then you know that wavers across all of of my cabinet with uh you know just the the demographics of cabinet and their experiences of where they've lived in and folks that they're involved in with as well and so you mentioned your family and i know that in terms of your family's background sometimes it sounds like the biblical story of job in terms of the extent to which you have experienced loss and tragedy with the disappearance of your nep nephew keen in the grand teton mountains being the most recent example of which so how does your own experience with trauma and grief inform your work as an educator to attend to the social and emotional needs of students yeah well you know i always say you know never cast stone because you never know what's happening in somebody else's uh, world or or um, within their family and so you know i think so often people look at me at the diocese as a superintendent and think you know that's a pretty cushy job he makes a decent salary um, i'm sure you know his life is is great but you know there's a lot of things um, in my life that i would change my job for or my salary for or the experience that I had just to have, you know, certain family members back um, and be able to interact. Um, obviously, I've talked a little bit about my brother, uh, my twin brother, when we went started back to work, I've lost him through suicide um, nine years ago. Um, my father the night before my wedding, 930 that evening. Um, I've lost an uh, older brother, um, a, a sister, uh, 
now with Kean as my second nephew that I've lost. So, um, you know, it's, it, it comes, uh, with some heartache, um, a lot of frustrated, um, nights and, 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 you know, worrisomes of, of kids that we interact with at school. Um, you know, what is it, what supports can we put in place, um, if they're experiencing trauma or have experienced, um, you know, just not an easy go with, uh, things within their family or in, within their classroom. And so, you know, that is something for me at the, the forefront of, of a lot. I, I can't say I've handled it, um, you know, in the best way always, um, you know, I'm, well, I think I'm pretty open about stuff, um, counseling and things like that just haven't worked for me. Um, so I carry a lot of that inside me, um, which, you know, come out in different ways, but, um, you know, sometimes I am a, uh, a person who says, do as I say, not as I do. Um, and that's a family saying that, you know, many families <laughs> have, but, um, it is one that, um, uh, you know, I'm, I, there are things where I'm not the example of, but I can give advice. And so, uh, you know, I think when we're working with our social emotional side of, of, um, students and, and families, um, and then, you know, I think, you know, and having, uh, Dr. Miller and, and Mr. Liu really engaged in that process now, um, working with Dr. Chamberlain, um, and having our wellness counselors now on campus and things like that, you know, we're putting some structures in place where if students are having a hard time, school, academic, or family life in general, that we're creating avenues for them uh, to have access to. And access to not just calling and scheduling a meeting or emailing and scheduling a meeting, but drop-in opportunities for them to say, I'm just having a really bad 15 minutes, or I had a really bad um, evening last night, I'm overwhelmed by A, B, or C, um, I need to talk to someone. And, um, you know, I think as, uh, you know, we work through those processes and, and continue to brainstorm strategies, we'll have, um, you know, a lot more that will come to play, but, um, we do have some really good people in our district who are really great at working with kids and adults, um, alike in trying to help them through some of the social emotional stuff. And, um, for me, I sometimes need to take advantage of that myself. Um, and, and I, and I do say, you know, there's times where I, I'm going to say it. I have a work problem. Um, I work a lot. Um, I, I called myself a workhorse, um, at a, at a meeting last week and it just so happened there were some board members on there and, and, you know, they all send a text and agree. It's not that, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that because there are times where I wish I could get away from work. Um, and it's not that I'm stuck to work altogether, but I think that that's for me, um, has always been kind of that avenue of dealing with grief has been that work side. So, um, that's how I handle it. And it's probably not the best, but it is, you know, that's my, my, my choice and my opportunity. Yeah, no, I can relate. There's straight up been times when Kyle has told me you need to take off time off yeah. work. And I'm like, no, I, yeah. I'm only okay if I'm busy, but I would like to put in an unsolicited plug for the high school's new wellness centers. My oldest daughter was having a panic attack in class the other day. So they sent her to a wellness center and she texted me and she's like, mom, this place is fantastic. So I know that those are a new development, but I also know that they're already helping students who need just a quick check-in with, yeah, with somebody. We know that uh, we've seen, um, you know, kids taking advantage of that opportunity to drop into the wellness centers. It's kind of a relaxing type atmosphere in there. It's, you know, you're not walking into, you know, a cold office and, and you're sitting across the desk from, you know, someone. It's, it's a pretty relaxing vibe in there. And I think, 
you know, for high school kids, it's the first opportunity to see something that's not structured in, in a way that we've seen those um, typical traditional structures. And so you're in charge of schools, so your mission is education. But one of the most remarkable things about watching board meetings is witnessing the sheer volume of misinformation that is presented at them. Most recently, it was false claims about sex ed and critical race theory being taught in school. And you even issued a statement to set the record straight. But before that, there was misinformation about a host of issues, including whether or not books like The Bluest Eye were being taught in whole class instruction and English, English classes promoting rape culture. How does misinformation impact CVUSD, and do you feel it's increasing? And what do you think is the most harmful misinformation around CVUSD? Well, yeah, misinformation or disinformation is definitely out there. Um, I don't know how particular it is to CVUSD, as you know, I, I spend a lot of time on social media, um, and I do see what's happening in neighboring districts and the nation and, and and school districts across the nation right now, and so I see a lot of the same talking points in say Virginia or Wisconsin or Michigan um, that I hear at times in in our uh, meetings. Um, so I, I can't say that. There's much originality in some of the things that I am hearing. I will say, you know, obviously since uh, the day I started in this role and and working uh, on the the uh, core literature um, issue and and the books that were being used in or, or some thought were being used in 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 class and things like that, you know, um, from a mis or disinformation standpoint, you know, I try to hit it head on, um, and it. Didn't matter if it was coming from community members or a member, a trustee at the dais. Um, you know, I would not shy away from having those hard conversations when the need arised. Um, obviously, there was over you know the first few years of being a superintendent, um, there was a lot of misstatements made um, during board meetings and and from the dais from one particular trustee that um, I never shied away from. Uh, interacting with or engaging with, um, and there was particular reasons why. But um, as as a district as a whole, you know, this is something that we are, um, you know, really developing strategies now on how we counteract or combat um, these uh, stories that are, are inaccurate. And I think for us, one, um, really knowing what's out in the social media world um, and see what's being said. Um, really analyzing the emails that, that come in from folks that are not accurate in, in their statements within the emails, the phone calls that are now increasing um, that we get on a regular basis. Today, someone um, called it, uh, I would say it was probably a grandparent called and wanted to know where the indoctrination office is. So that is, you know, that's one of those talking points that I know exists out in 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 our community, but also um, just from state to state at this point in time. And so, um, you know, that's why I think we've moved to our uh, Monday snapshots to make sure we can get some information out that's accurate. Um, you know, we, uh, the board had given direction and made to, to work on creating a communication um committee, which we had our first uh, committee meeting this week just to get to introduce each other to who was interested in being on that committee. So we had 10 parents um, involved in that um, committee. And one of the big conversations at the end about what will this committee do is 
will be out trying to combat this mis and disinformation that, that floats around. So we're starting to build an army out there that can really reach out to us for some talking points and then get out on social media and basically say, this is inaccurate. Here's the real information. Um, and this is what's accurate. Your statements are, are false. Um, and so I think building that, that, um, response is going to be really, really key for us. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, it's just a, it's a battle that not just education has to deal with. I think um, a lot of different um, careers right now are dealing with, with that, that misinformation. And, and it's really about, one, being patient, but two, um, really having some good strategies to, to combat it and say it's just not accurate. And I think from a district perspective and, and working with our uh, communication coordinator, um, you know, it's we know that we have some growth in that area, but we know we've also put in some some steps to help that along the way. Due to the pandemic, this has been a tough year and a half to be in education. I think schools going remote impacted families deeply and really drove home the importance of in-person education. So what are your reflections on the past 18 months when it comes to running a district and supporting students and their families through unprecedented challenges while you yourself were going through those same challenges at home? Yeah, I, you know, I think during my time as the superintendent, it's just tough. It's tough for me to even say that the past 18 months was, you know, the first of difficult times. I mean, one, like I said, I came into the the district when, you know, we really had some action around Common Core um, and core literature and what was being used and not being used and some really long battles starting, you know, when I, when I came in in my tenure. Um, and then we also had then finding a home for Canal Valley High School was, was a piece of that. Um, and then, you know, we had the borderline shooting and then the Thomas Woosley Hill and more park fires. I mean, so I can't say that my tenure um, overall has has really ever been a a a situation where um, it's been calm. Um, and so, you know, to me, uh, this has just kind of been the way of life of being a superintendent. And, and so often I have superintendents in the community say, I don't, Mark, I don't know how, how you do this. Um, and, or, you know, I know your district's a lot tougher than my district. And, and for me, I don't know anything different at this point. Um, we're five years in and we've had some type of a situation or scenario that's really causing upheaval within our community um, that came with the need to have a lot of social emotional supports for kids and, and adults. And so I don't know anything different other than kind of this frenzy that happens around, um, you know, either controversy and or just uh, the, you know, our environment as a whole with some tragedies. And so the last 18 months, um, you know, what I've learned is there's a lot of experts in our community who don't work in education that are experts in education based on the feedback that I get. Um, And a lot of times what us as a district are providing to our families as far as information um, or educational programs or mandates through health and safety protocols, they're all mandates from other governmental agencies that have a little bit more power than us. And so it's our job 
um, to implement those requirements or mandates. And it's not about whether or not we agree or disagree or people who come to the board meeting say, I can't believe you're doing A, B, or C. I mean, there are times where I may agree with the person who's saying, you know, why are you implementing A, B, or C? But ultimately it comes back to the fact that there's other governmental agencies um, telling us that we have to implement, or there's education code um, telling us that we need to implement, um, or there's a state law change saying that we need to implement. And so, you know, that to me is sometimes uh, the frustrating piece. There's, there's other times where um, until we get all the way through the pandemic, and we sit down and we say, okay, what worked and didn't work. If people thought and think that this was gonna, every decision we made over the course of the last 18 to 20 months was um, gonna be 100% correct, they're, they're, I mean, they're just wrong, straight out wrong. There's nobody who's got this all right. Um, no school districts, um, schools or communities had to face uh, similar pandemics in the world like us, I, I'm not going to go back to 1912 and 1812 because there was education taking place. But you know, our worlds are much different than than back when those pandemics hit. And so, you can't like look back and say, "Oh, what was their playbook?" Um, so often in education up till this point, you could always find a school district who may have been experiencing something that you're experiencing um, from a tragedy standpoint or. Um, from a health and safety issue and and you could say okay here's what they did will this work for us or will it not work for us but once 20 months ago came there was really no districts and no experience out there on how how to handle this and so it's been tough it's been like i said a lot of reading of emails um a lot of responding back of emails a lot of not responding back of emails <laughs> a lot of uh emails that were written and then immediately deleted uh, a lot of emails sitting in my draft um, <laughs> a lot of phone calls you know the same way i just think that you know ultimately what comes out is you know, it's that Monday morning quarterback um, that says, you know, after it happens, you should have done A, B, or C. And, and there's times where I sit back and reflect and I'm like, yeah, you're right. But at the time, we didn't have the same information. And now we have new information that would have made our decisions different. And so that's that's been the hard part. Um, so talk to me about the emotional toll of this job because it seems like district office is just like crisis control center and it has been for the past five months. And so what has the impact of that been on you personally? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's, it, it's been tough. Um, ultimately every nasty email, um, that you get, you, you read it and you reflect on it and, um, and, you know, me personally, I take all that to heart. Um, and, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of pieces to my personality where, you know, I, I guess I'm a pleaser where, you know, I, I, I like to th see things um, work and work well and be structured and allow um, our families and students to be happy with the decision and our employees to be happy with the decision. Um, you know, you, you learn right away in this job. You just can't that can't happen. You just have too many decisions that um, come to the forefront as the superintendent and the board of education that you're just not going to be able to please everybody. Um, but it is about, um, you know, that reflection um, and, and not letting it 
you know, beat you up too bad. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't sleep well. Um, I can't say that I ever slept well, but, um, as you sit and brainstorm in your head all night long about, um, you know, how do we get kids back on campus full time? Is this blended model really working? You know, what's this short-term independent study versus long-term independent study law? And, and how does that going to impact us? You know, we have, you know, 15 days, the law just got passed and we're starting school on the 18th. And, and, you know, how do we roll this out to our families when, you know, for the last two months, our anticipation was that we'd be starting school in a normal school setting, um, which, you know, like it looked previous years. And, and obviously that didn't, didn't happen just based on the Delta variant, um, growing. And so, um, it does, it does take a toll. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm always better at do as I say, not as I do. So, you know, hopefully people have really good strategies to release stress and not beat themselves up too bad. So I wasn't planning on asking this, but um, I know Jim Friedel from Cneo Reckon Park. He once told me that when he's having a hard day at school, he'll just go to a park and watch kids play. And I know that there have been a couple times during board meetings where you've mentioned visiting schools and you just kind of like light up. So talk to me about like visiting schools. Like does that help kind of bring you back to what's important and what matters? It does. Um, and I was actually thinking this um, – Friday night at the Newberry Park Thousand Oaks football game, you know, because both side, sides were, you know, full of people, um, you know, Thousand Oaks football team is growing in, in kids again. And so, um, and it was, a, it was a really good game. And so you, you sit there and you think um, to yourself, like, this is what it's about. You know, one half I stand on one sideline, the other half I stand on the other. And um, it's like, it's good to be around kids. It's good to see this activity happening. It's good to hear, great to hear the bands and the cheerleaders and, and you know, the halftime performances and those type of things. So for me, as I have those days and, and um, I need to get away from the office, um, you know, going out to a school site, um, seeing our teachers teach and engage kids, um, seeing the technology that's being used, uh, knowing that first graders are now doing things with technology that, you know, you know, 20 years ago, eighth graders weren't doing that. And, and so, you know, that, that makes you think like, you know, there's a lot of great things happening and, and because I'm dealing with, you know, an upset individual or a new, uh, mandate that comes in and I'm sitting in my office trying to figure out, you know, what the protocols are, um, that, you know, at the school sites, there's still really great stuff happening and to get out there and, and see the kiddos. And, um, there are definitely, um, particular schools I like to hit. They bring me back to my roots a little bit. Um, <laughs> probably the title one schools I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's true. Um, you know, for me, uh, Walnut is a great school. Miss Wall is an awesome principal. Um, it kind of runs and looks a little bit like the schools um, where I taught at and um, and was a elementary principal at. And so, yeah, that's a good spot for me kind of just to, and it's quiet um, normally, so you can kind of get some fresh air um, and just, you know, at times just be out you know, I'm fine doing like recess duty and things like that. I'm, I'm good to tell a student to quit running on the blacktop, you know? So, uh, um, so it is, it's, it's good to get out and, 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 and see the schools and see what's happening in our classrooms and interacting with our teachers and things like that. 
And then um, lastly, there have been some really exciting developments in the district over the past months, past few months and the past few years, like the creation of new magnet schools, major construction projects courtesy of the Measure I bond, and next year, the long-awaited introduction of a dual language immersion program at Caneo Elementary. So what are you most excited about in terms of what's happening in CVUSD? Well, I, I mean, I think that that's a good introduction of just the areas in which um, you, as any superintendent, would be excited about. First, I think, you know, the ability to get the Westlake High School STEM building open um, is going to be really exciting to know that we worked with Amgen on the creation of those classrooms and, and really worked with our students on bathroom setups and, and the teachers on just you know, what, what's needed uh, within the classrooms itself, I think is all exciting, exciting work. And we know when that building's done, then we can get out to, to Westlake, or I mean, out to Newberry Park and work on their science building and, and things like that. So, you know, not every district has that opportunity of, of Measure I funds being made available to really support our school sites and, and, put in some of those really nice features. Sometimes, you know, those features are behind the wall and people don't see them. Other times those features are wide open and I think the taxpayers within and around those schools really see the benefit. As you said, the dual immersion program that will be opening next year at Caneo Elementary is really exciting. I think we have some folks in, in our district who have been part of dual immersion programs in in the past and a principal at Kineho Elementary who has experience in that as well. So, you know, it's a like I've said before, it's about having some of the right pieces in order to move forward with like a program as as a dual immersion. And so, um, you know, because it's really hard if you don't have that experience to try to do it. And uh, for me as a superintendent, my own children attended dual immersion schools till we moved out here. So I've had the experience as a parent having materials come home in Spanish and not know exactly what it's asking <laughs> and trying to have my child translate who's just learning a new language. And, and so Google Translate was definitely our friend. And so the ability for us to have an opportunity for both Thousand Oaks, Newberry Park, and Westlake to have kids come together and um, really walk away with kids being bilingual, I think is really, really important, especially as we think about what the future holds. And and being uh, bilingual or multilingual is so important in working with people within communities and across the world. Um, but other things, you know, that I know uh, that, that come to mind is, you know, we keep every year continuing to increase our inclusion opportunities for students in special education and being in uh, classes um, in, in an environment um, that I think gives them the opportunity to uh, work with with students and teachers from a general ed setting that really will prepare them um, if they are college bound to to continue on with their academics and to learn skill sets on how to interact with with folks as um, they move into that adulthood world and and out into the workforce one of the things that we haven't shared a lot about this year is we did create a visual and performing arts 
a teacher on assignment. VAPA is what we we call the position, and anyone anything dealing with visual and performing arts, which is our theater, our um, our bands, uh, music programs, chorus and choir, those type of things. That's that all falls under um, our our VAPA. And one of the things that our district has not had is really a a long term strategic plan about how do we support those programs. And so Brian Peter, who was the band teacher um, out at Westlake High School for many years and, and in, still teaches one class there, stepped in and took on that role. And, you know, I see him frequently and he's excited about the position. He knows that, um, you know, we're on the the ground floor of, of building that strategic plan that to support all those different areas. But I think people would look at our district and say that's probably a district that has a strategic plan about the future and we we didn't we kind of just have been i'm not going to say winging it because we have really good professionals in all those different areas who are experts in their field so they make it work but we've never really had it all beginning to end and here's all the focus areas and here's all the supports that we need and so i think that that's going to be really key. And, and and we know that we work with, with some outside organizations in that area with Canal Schools Foundation and the TO Arts. You know, that's that other connection back that I think is important from a, from a district perspective is our ability to work with community groups. Um, it'll be nice to be, um, as much as the community may not want to hear this or some in the community, it'll be nice to be in compliance with the California Healthy Youth Act. Um, After all these years. Yes. Um, you know, we rolled out our ninth grade materials um, in course of study this last week, um, you know, we're be one, we had our high schools, especially Newberry Park, um, because of their block scheduling, um, needed those that course of study and materials available to them um, sooner than later. And so that's why we worked through the high school um, materials first. Now we have, are starting with the the seventh grade stuff, um, professional development and the writing of that course um, description and getting the materials together so that as we move through, hopefully right on the back end of, of January, we can start rolling that material out to our families so they can take a look at it. Because I know the seventh grade one is the one that seems to have the most questions and concerns. We know that those 11 or 12 or 13 lessons don't come until the end of the year, but we, we do want to get that material out. And then I think um, when families look at um, our our community resources, our community resources look much different than the the QR codes that we've been hearing a lot about for the last three or four months yeah. um, through through Teen Talk uh, because those were um, a northern uh, area of California's resources. Um, we've had a set of resources that we've had in place for a few years here um, that meet the, uh, the Ed Code guidance of local resources, and so you know our our stuff ties back directly to what's happening um, within our community and and doesn't send you off into publications or books or or websites that you know we've heard a little bit of frustration about. So you know I think that that's that's a piece as we move forward. Well, on the bright side, at least it's an engaged community. Yep. Um, and then my last question, and I don't know if you have a ready answer for this, but looking back over your last five years as superintendent, what are your proudest accomplishments? Well, that's, that is a good question. Um, 
well, from a superintendent standpoint, that I've made it five years. <laughs> um, you know, the tenure of a superintendent in California is short. Um, it's less than three years. Um, and I'm a position. To see why. Um, you know, through the pandemic, there was a lot of turnover in school districts. Um, uh, this last year, a lot of superintendents either retired or was like, this wasn't the gig for me, or boards were making changes. Um, a lot. Um, and so for me to, to be on that year five, um, from a superintendent standpoint, I think, um, is, is, is rewarding. I know that it could change, you know, that's just the nature of being in this position. And, you know, sometimes those decisions you make are, are, are helpful and keep you in that position. And other times, um, you know, you make a wrong decision or a board turns over and you're, you know, you're out of luck. Um, I knew that the day I left um, a school district where I had tenure status and came to be an assistant soup that, um, you know, there's people that make decisions about my work world that may not necessarily be me making those decisions. And so, but I, I do think I've worked with 13 board members in this district in nine years. Um uh, I've had a very positive working relationship with 12 of the 13. Um, I think that they would all say that, um, you know, I put in the effort. Um, Mark works really hard at his job. Um, his communication skills with us are are on point. Um, he doesn't back down or away from much. And that, um, and, I, and I would say that um, our employee groups would say similar things as we work through some of the, the heartache together. But to me, over the time of my superintendency, uh, the friendships, um, the colleagues that I've got to know, um, the ability to brainstorm and problem solve with different groups have been very rewarding. The ability to turn on DAC meetings and see community groups or demographics that have not been um, uh, had the opportunity to have a certain DAC meeting before um, and seeing their faces light up when they're on the other side of that virtual world right now. Sometime we'll get back in person, but um, I would say the last two weeks of seeing our African-American um, DAC folks um, really engage in the conversation with us and and know that now they have a voice uh, is very powerful and the same for our LGBTQ plus uh, uh, DAC um, have been very uh, rewarding. Um, and then ultimately, I, I think just as a district as a whole, our schools and students um, do amazing things. And so as I flip through uh, social media world at night and I see the things that our schools post and our teachers post and our kids are engaged in and, and are winning or are participating in um, or just, you know, sharing out experiences. I think those are the things that um, really keep me going um, and know that things, you know, I would say it can be better some places or it could be worse some places, but right now this is my place and um, I'm happy to be here. Um, I, I have full trust in our current board of education. Um, I have, you know, I think that they, um, really step up and make the hard decisions when the hard decision needs to be made. I know people don't like sometimes those hard decisions are being made, um, hence why we have this, um, you know, as an example, um, the 
health education. You know, that decision should have been made in 2016 um, or 2017 um, or 2018 or 2019. And it wasn't really until this board got together that they were willing to, to make the decision. And so when at times boards push off making hard decisions, you know, it lands on someone and, and it landed on this board and, and me as superintendent. And, um, I always say it's, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to push some of that stuff off, but eventually either I am going to have to make the decision or the board's going to have to make the decision or the following superintendent's going to have to make that decision and the following board will have to make that decision. It's not fair to them. And so we've, we've got to make those decisions as they come up. And, and so, like I said, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I know that it's out in, in the real world that, uh, Mr. or trustee Campobianco will remain on the board. Um, and that the, um, petition has failed with, um, I don't know, 48.9% of um, the signatures being noted as invalid. Um, to me, no, helps me in knowing, you know, this is this is my group of board members that I'll be working with for sure up through, you know, next December. Um, and we'll see how, how the next election goes. But um, I am happy with uh, the work that I think our, our board is doing and, and our ability to work together. If you're looking for professional house cleaners who deliver a consistent, quality job, look no further than Made in America House Cleaning Services. Made in America has a dependable and loyal staff of cleaners who are fully licensed, bonded, and insured to work in your homes, and they even pay workers' comp on all employees, and as I understand it, that's pretty rare. Made in America has been serving the Greater Conejo Valley for over 30 years, and owner Paul Lopez has been a resident of Thousand Oaks since 1977. When you call Made in America, you know you're dealing with a professional company that is deeply rooted in the community it serves. Paul has been a member of the Kiwanis Club since 2015, and he loves giving back to the community and serving through the Meals on Wheels program. So when you support Made in America, you're supporting these programs. Uh, Made in America takes cleanliness seriously and adheres to a strict COVID protocol to keep customers and employees safe. For a free house cleaning estimate, call Paul today at 805-499-7259 or find them on the web at madeinamericaonline.com. That's Made in America, M-A-I-D. Thanks for listening, and we'd love to know what you think. So if you'd like to contact us, please email branchingout at theacorn.com or follow us on Twitter at branchingoutpod. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share, or please, please, please leave us a review. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Reporter Dawn, and we hope to see you next week. Thanks so much. <laughs>